Let's ask God's help uh, as we study his word. Let's pray. Almighty and loving Father, we pray now that as we come to listen to your word, uh, we ask that you would open our eyes and open our minds to hear what you have to say, to understand it clearly. You would open our hearts that we would humble ourselves before you and obey uh, and trust in you. And we pray that in all things we would see your glory, the glory that you have shown uh, in the gospel of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray uh, that through this time that we would be built up as your people to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Now, in today's passage, the Lord addresses a subject that is common to us all. Worry. Worry. Now, for some of us, worry will be a 24-7 occupation. Uh, It follows us around in nearly all circumstances like an albatross around our neck. Uh, It's there when we wake. It's there when we go to sleep. But whether you obsess about worry or not, all of us are inclined to worry about some things. Imagine the workplace. Uh, Will I complete that project and meet that deadline? If I make a mistake, will it cost me my job? Can I trust my colleagues or are they plotting against me? Will the company have enough clients in 2018? If not, will my business go under? Or if the company does do badly, will I lose that business that I desperately need, uh, that bonus that I desperately need? Or worse, will there be retrenchment? Perhaps you're a student. You might be asking, will I get that scholarship? Uh, What happens if I don't? Uh, If I do, will I get the grades that I need? If I don't, will I lose my scholarship? Will I get a job when I graduate? Or maybe your anxiety is social. Will I be accepted by my peer group? I'm nearing my 30s. Will I ever get a boyfriend or girlfriend? Will I remain unmarried? If I am married, will we be able to conceive children? Uh, if, they do, if we do, will they be healthy? Uh, will I be able to provide them with good schooling? Can I afford to send them overseas? What about the culture? Will they be able to live faithfully as Christians? And if they do, what challenges will they face? Or if it's not those things, then perhaps it's our health. How long have I had that cough for now? Is that feeling in my chest normal? If it is, then am I becoming paranoid? (laughs) What will happen if I really do get sick? Will insurance cover the costs? Who will care for me if it doesn't? Who will care for my family if I die? Now, whether small or great, anxiety is a universal human experience. It lurks in every environment. It questions every assurance. It undermines every confidence. And at its heart is the ever-present, persistent, and nagging doubt, that question, what if? But despite being the predisposition of almost every human heart, in this passage, Jesus immediately and abruptly confronts and arrests our worry. Look at verse 22. Jesus says this to his followers. I tell you, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Now first, observe that Jesus isn't offering us a catharsis or a placebo. Uh, He isn't recommending that we just chill out and ignore life's problems. 
Uh, I had a friend at uh, university, when I was struggling with my finals, he said that uh, it could be resolved with a little bit of Valium. Now, I can tell you that won't make your exams go any easier. It just makes it feel like it's gone easier. Um, he might as well have said, don't worry, be happy. Now, the Lord does not offer well-meaning but asinine advice. Instead, he commands us, do not be anxious. Now, that is, first and foremost, Jesus says that anxiety is an ethical act. To worry is ethical. And so while it may be common to all of us, the Lord tells us that worrying is nevertheless sin. And it's sinful because it's the fruit of an unbelieving heart, a heart that says to God, I don't trust you to care for me. I'd rather look to myself. Thank you very much. Now, to understand that anxiety is ethical is extremely important. It will shape the rest of our thinking on the subject. It means that the presence of anxiety is not determined by our circumstances. And therefore, it won't disappear with the alleviation of those circumstances. We live in an age of material abundance and prosperity, but we still worry. And the United States is one of the countries which has the highest rates of anxiety and clinical depression. Now, anxiety is fundamentally about our heart. It, asks, it is our response to the question, does God really love me? And it is to respond to that question with unbelief. And when it's viewed like that, it's easier to see that to worry, to be anxious, is to sin. And Jesus says, don't be anxious. Now, before we continue, it's important to note that this command comes within the context of the preceding discourse. You can see that in verse 22. Jesus says, therefore I tell you this. And at this point in Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem to be crucified. And while he was on the road, he was proclaiming the kingdom of God, healing the sick, and teaching his disciples. And in this chapter, Jesus had been teaching those disciples what it would mean to follow him in an age of strong opposition. Uh, he addresses some fairly fundamental anxieties. He tells them not to be afraid of those who could kill them. He tells them not to be anxious when they're brought before the authorities. Now, those are some fairly major anxieties to have. But in the middle of Jesus' teaching on this subject, some obnoxious loudmouth uh, pipes up his voice in the crowd. He says to Jesus, tell my brother to split the inheritance with me. Now, this man probably had been cheated in some way by a conniving sibling. Uh, and he was probably hoping that Jesus would uh, come and support him. Well, boy, was he ever wrong. <laughs> because instead of siding with this man, what does Jesus say to him? Well, actually, he hits him with the rhetorical equivalent of a freight train. He says to the man, watch out. Be on your guard against all covetousness. Now, that response of Jesus is not a kind of gently worded uh, recommendation, uh, perhaps as take care suggests. It's a strong and emphatic warning. Jesus warned the man most severely, and he warns us 
that the desire for material possessions poses a significant and serious danger. In fact, unchecked material desire is lethal. And to illustrate this, uh, Jesus tells us a parable about a wealthy man. So I want you to look just at the preceding bit. Look at verses 16 to 20. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build large ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? The parable highlights uh, the, the fragility of earthly riches. Jesus is very blunt. Everyone who stores up earthly riches in this world will leave them at the grave. Everyone. And perhaps I am talking to some people here who are indeed spending their lives like the rich fool, uh, living uh, their lives in the pursuit of material gain. And so I want to be no less blunt than the force of the preceding passage. If you're living your life like that, God says to you, you are an idiot. You are stupid. Or if you want to put it more eloquently than that, you are pursuing your wealth in the shadow of your tomb. Don't be foolish. But perhaps you aren't living for material gain. Uh, you can probably agree with Jesus' rebuke to the man. Uh, greed is not good. No, I shouldn't cover that condo. No, I shouldn't cover that lucrative investment or that job opportunity. No, I shouldn't cover the iPhone 10 or whatever number they're up to now. I mean, in a year's time, this will be current, I presume. But when Jesus turns to his disciples to comment on that parable, he doesn't say, for this reason, I say unto you, do not be greedy. But what does he say? For this reason, I say to you, do not be anxious. And perhaps we're tempted to respond, but, but Lord, I need a house. I need a car. I have bills to pay. I've got children to care for. Perhaps we might feel that it is acceptable, indeed it is justifiable, to worry about these things. But Jesus says no. Look down at verse 22. I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. That is what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. Now imagine Jesus' original context. At that time, society was an agrarian economy. People were completely dependent upon the harvest. If the rain didn't fall on the land, the soil wouldn't yield a crop, and there would be widespread famine. The average Joe lived from day to day, from year to year, in a hand-to-mouth culture. It was subsistence culture. And so therefore, in first century Palestine, the motivation to store up food, to hedge against uncertainty, must have been extremely compelling. But Jesus says to his followers, don't be anxious about what you will eat or what you will wear. 
So if Jesus' command strikes you as unreasonable, unrealistic, and extreme, then imagine how it must have seemed to the original audience, to a people whose two basic questions in life were, what am I going to eat, and what am I going to wear tomorrow? Jesus' command not to worry about those things must have been absolutely mind-boggling. But thankfully, Jesus will buttress this extraordinary command, this extraordinary remark in the next 10 verses. So we're going to examine those. He gives us a few solid reasons why we should not worry. And the first of those hangs off in verse 23. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. Verse 23, for life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Now think about that just for one moment. Your life is more than food. Your body is more than clothes. Now this afternoon, if you were to take a walk through Mid Valley or Paradigm or KLCC or Wanutam or Publica, you will get a very different impression. Every one of those malls has row upon row of clothing outlets or watch outlets. Uh, and row upon row of places selling food. In fact, the purpose of a mall is to satisfy those two basic cravings that Jesus tells us not to worry about. What is the sharpest thing I can wear, and what is the tastiest thing that I can eat? What about Facebook? Now, in the Asian context, when I arrived here, it was a surprise to find it was picture after picture of food. It's kind of like going through a menu, but it just doesn't end. Um, <laughs> I mean, in England, we eat our food. We don't photograph it, but never mind. In almost every way, the culture communicates to us that if life has any meaning, then it must be found in feeding and clothing our body. The world says, come on, take your body out for some fun. Drape some nice clothes on your body. Stuff your body with fine food. Shovel in some treats. Hey, if that's too much, you can always bring your body to a gym. Uh, you can tone your body up a bit. Maybe you can take your body out to a hair salon. Maybe you can take your body out to a nice massage. Put your body in a nice car. Come on, satisfy your body. Feed your body. Love your body. It's all about the body. And so the world says that the essence of life is comfort for the body through the accumulation of material goods. But for the Christian, this is not true. If we associate the very essence of life with these material things, even those things that we regard as basic essentials, then we will idolize them, be fixated by them, and worry about them. But if we know that life isn't really about those things, then our anxiety is immediately cut in half. So that's the first truth. The living God says to his church, says to the Malaysian church even, that life is more than food. Now comes the second truth. Life is more than food, and you are more than birds and grass. Look down at verses 24 to 28. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouses nor barns, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? 
Or the next illustration, consider the lilies in verse 27. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Now remember that Jesus was just walking around in the outdoors, and so he was picking illustrations from the things that were common around him, namely birds and plants. Now the raven was very common. It wasn't a valuable bird, and in fact it was even unclean in Judaism. Uh, The lilies in the field were not valuable either. They were a kind of a field weed that would just be gathered up and used in the fire to cook. But Jesus' point is really very simple. The birds, unlike the rich fool, have neither stores nor barns, and yet God feeds them. The lilies do not toil, do not spin, and yet God clothes them. And spectacularly so. Now, in all of this, Jesus is illustrating and unpacking a theology of something called providence. Now, providence was a big deal for the reformers, uh, but the notion of God as provider doesn't really cross our radar as, as, as much these days. And ironically, perhaps that's because we're more affluent than the church of yesteryear. We're less aware of God as our provider. But the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way. God, the creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest, even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence. This is commonly seen in the Psalms, the idea that God looks after and cares for everything from the greatest to the least. In Psalm 104, David says, You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. In the psalm that you read earlier, the little ravens, they cry out to God, and God feeds them. So here, and in many other places, the scripture testifies that God, God the creator, continues to provide for his creation. Now, notice that's not an excuse for idleness. Okay, the rest of scripture is clear. Paul says, the one who does not work shall not eat. Okay, the raven uh, is provided for by God, but not by having worms crawl their way down his gullet. You still have to work. But the doctrine of providence does counter two opposing beliefs that we might fall prey to and are very common in every culture and particularly so in ours. Uh, The first is uh, determinism or... um, Uh, We might call it deism. Uh, And the second is fortune. So deism and fortune. Now first, deism says that there is a creator God, but he has ceased to have any active involvement in his creation. Uh, Instead, he's created, disappeared, and left us to the impersonal forces of nature. Now, God does work through secondary causes, but not in a way that is independent of him. 
The scripture says that the Lord upholds the universe by the word of his power. It's personal. The universal laws of nature are a demonstration, a present demonstration of the faithfulness of God's word. In the regular pattern of ordinary events, God is showing his faithfulness to all of us. It's one of the ways that he provides. But second, if we, if we don't buy uh, the idea of deism, then we've also got fortune, or what we might call today chance. Uh, we live in an age in which chance has been elevated to an almost godlike status. Nothing can be certain. Everything is random. Uh, and in the middle of the 20th century, this became very prominent in science. Uh, the study of quantum mechanics uh, had shot a hole straight through the notion of physical determinism. That is, one event causes another, and so can predict the next and the next and the next and the next. Uh, a guy called Heisenberg uh, proved that it was impossible for humans to know with certainty both the position and the velocity of an electron. Um, now, why am I telling you that? I'm telling you that because the reason that was stated was because that is a randomly uh, determined event. Okay? Now, this is, this is where we contrast, right? So although we, as humans, as creatures, cannot understand the universe precisely and exhaustively, that doesn't mean that God is limited like us. God is the creator of the universe, not us. He knows the universe because he has ordained whatsoever comes to pass, whether it is unfathomably big or infinitesimally small. From the biggest planet and star to the smallest quark and electron, God is in absolute control of them all. Nothing is random to God. And so if we're tempted to fall prey to either of those views and to say to ourselves that either the universe is impersonal, so it doesn't care for me, or it's random uh, and unpredictable, so I can't trust it, um, then we've made the universe to be ultimate as our provider in our thinking. We've forgotten that behind the universe, there is actually a person, a person who is not capricious, a person who is not fickle, but a person who is thoroughly and uh, unequivocally predictable in his character. God is a God of faithfulness. And there's nowhere that's more clear than the gospel. In the narrative of Luke so far, we have seen how God has directed the entire universe, the entire course of history from the point of creation to the coming of Christ and beyond. And we have seen how Christ fulfills prophecy even in the minutest detail. We have seen how he controls the path of stars to declare his coming. And later, Luke will tell us that Christ would be delivered up to death according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Nothing takes God by surprise. And the purpose of this grand work is what? It's to save and redeem us, the church. The coming of Christ, his incarnation, his death, is the ultimate demonstration to us of God's provision, of his care. It shows us that God cares about his creatures, and particularly he cares about his church. He doesn't want us to be abandoned to an eternal death and separation from him. He doesn't want us to rot in hell. It shows the true extent of his care, for God does not merely command 
to set this thing straight. But he sent forth the person of his beloved son to pay our penalty that we might be forgiven. God loves us with a personal love that is demonstrated by the gift of the person of his son. And so for this reason, the Westminster Confession goes on to talk about special providence, not just providence in the way that God cares for the the ravens and for the lilies and God cares for the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, but it says that as the providence of God does in general reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner, it takes care of his church and disposes all things to the good thereof. Amen. For if God so loved us in Christ that he did not spare his only son but gave him up, can you not trust him to feed and clothe you in this present age? Doesn't the gospel tell you that you are worth more to God than birds or more than the grass and the leaves outside? Are you of little faith? So those are the first two points. Life is more than food and clothes, and God faithfully feeds the birds and the grass, and so he will faithfully feed his people. But now we're going to look at the converse, okay? If we don't trust that God will provide, uh, the sole sovereign creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, the one who has demonstrated the extent of his provision in the incarnation and the death of his son, then whom will we trust? We won't trust the universe, because it's impersonal and random, who will we trust? Well, the answer is plain, but yet completely ridiculous. In an act of absolute kind of cosmic hubris and arrogance, we will look to ourselves. Look to ourselves as the ultimate provider of all of our needs. And so in the next point, Jesus hits us straight in the place of our misplaced pride. Look down at verse 25. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If you are not able to do so small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Now, it'll be, hopefully to some of you, it'll be interesting to learn that verse 25 literally reads, uh, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his height? Now, a cubit was 18 inches, okay? And believe me, I've been wishing to add a cubit to my height since I was about 10, all right? I can sort of do that, and then that's about it. Maybe I can get a chair. Um, It'd be quite nice one of these days to actually look Farshid in the eye and not kind of straight in the chest. That'd be be really pleasant. But never mind, I've got to be content to be short. Um, Anyway, it's a metaphor. You can't add height to your stature, no matter how much you try, and you can't add time to your life. You can't even add a single hour. You're not in control of either of those things. Now, look, you can go to the gym, you can take care of yourself, and yeah, that's a good thing to do, but God is the ruler and governor of the universe. He gives life and breath to everything and everyone, and he does so in the minutest detail. That means that every breath that you are drawing right now, this second, every contraction that your heart is making right now, this second, happens because God has ordained it, nothing else. And those things will cease the very moment when God has ordained it, regardless of whether you are anxious or not.
Therefore, if even by your anxiety in you cannot achieve even, even the slightest modicum of change in the really, really big thing that you want, which is to live, why would you be anxious about anything else? It's like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. It's not going to do any good. So don't worry about food. Don't worry about clothing, because your life is more than these things. And when you worry about them, you distrust God and place undue trust in, trust in yourself. Now, to all of those reasons, the Lord adds yet another, and this time with a contrast. Look at verse 29 to 31. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Now, Jesus is saying that seeking after food, seeking after clothing, or even worrying about those things is uncharacteristic with our identity as God's children and denies the distinction that we should make with the rest of the world. Now, the notion that God is our Father, uh, that's appeared twice before in Luke. Uh, in two chapters earlier, Jesus says this. He rejoices in the Holy Spirit, and he says, I thank you, Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, the sovereign, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children. Yes, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal, to reveal him. And then turning to his disciples, he said to them privately, Blessed are you, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. In these verses, Jesus was telling his disciples, and he's telling us, that as little children, we can know God, the Lord of heaven and earth, as our Father in and through Christ. And for this reason, we're blessed above kings, we're blessed above prophets, we have a privileged status in history. And now, knowing this, Jesus is asking us to look around. Doesn't everyone else seek after food and drink? Don't all the unbelievers who don't know God as their father, who are alien to the covenants of promise, aliens to the gospel, don't they seek food and drink and worry about those things? Aren't the pagans anxious about those things? Why should it be so with you? Don't you know who you are? Or more still, don't you know who your father is? Your father is God. I'm sure if you were um, Baron Trump or Malia Obama, uh, you would feel a, a sense of, of uh, protection and comfort. Well, your father isn't the president of the United States. Your father is God. God will care for you. Now, John Stott, the, the wonderful English uh, preacher, he was a most irenic and peaceful man, uh, put, put it in this kind of uncharacteristically blunt way. I really like this. He says this, to become preoccupied with material things 
in such a way that they engross our attention, they absorb our energy, and burden us with anxiety is incompatible with both Christian faith and common sense. It is distrustful of our Heavenly Father, and it is frankly stupid. It is what pagans do, but it is utterly unsuitable and unworthy ambition for Christians. As children of a loving Heavenly Father, a Father who is intimately involved in the affairs of this world, a Father who has given His Son to redeem His church, seek those things which you have been called for. Seek the kingdom of your Father. Pursue the things that advance the name of your Father, not the comfort of your belly. But so far, this this may be hard to to see the application. What does this look like? What what would it actually mean? What does it look like not to be anxious? Don't really know what a lack of anxiety would look like. It's hard to test. I can tell from my wife occasionally that that she's anxious, and that's only after four years of marriage. Um, So what does it mean? What does it mean not to be anxious? Uh, Do we enter a Zen-like state of calm? Uh, Are we like the Buddhists? Do we transcend the physical and overcome it by believing that everything is illusory? No, not at all. Jesus' command against anxiety in the following verses is an exhortation to pursue his kingdom with a very practical outworking in our physical daily affairs. Look down at verse uh, uh, 33. Verse 33, he says, with another direct command, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Sell your possessions, give to the needy. Now, if you want to know uh, whether you are gripped with anxiety about material goods, here's a good test. It'll be evident in your attitude towards giving to other people. Now, perhaps you might think in your mind, look, if I sell and I give uh, to to provide for my poor brother and sister, will God provide for me? That would be uh, unwise, wouldn't it? Or maybe you say, well, I could provide, and I really want to, but only if I had a little bit more. I'm really strapped, and I've, I've got everything within my budget. But notice that Jesus doesn't provide any conditionals here. There's no preset criteria to give. The Lord simply commands us to give to the needy. Now, does that mean you go out now and sell everything you have? No, I don't think so. But ask yourself this. Are you willing to give up and to sell things that you possess to feed and clothe your brothers and sisters, to feed and clothe those who are in need. Well, as God's people, we should be. The early church did this in in Acts chapter 6. Well, perhaps you can think about it this way. Um, What are you about to spend your money on? What's the thing that you've been salivating over recently, the new kind of tech gadget, uh, or that particular thing that you really want, the handbag, or the shoes, uh, or the phone? You got your your eye on that new iPhone. Um, You know, you you can probably do without it and save a few thousand ringgit, right? Uh, What about that daily Starbucks? And that's 10 10 ringgit a day, maybe, 50 ringgit a week, sometimes more. Could that be better spent? There's other ways to get coffee. What about the better model of car? Do you really want it because of the better safety features or because it's a bit embarrassing to have a paradour? instead of a Toyota? Do you really need to live in the swanky part of town? Now look, it's not wrong to have an iPhone, it's not wrong to drink Starbucks, it's not wrong to drive a Honda, and it's not wrong to live in Monchiara. (laughs) 
Sorry, smack one, okay? At smack two, it'll be like... But all of those things are treasures that will fail. They will perish. And Jesus exhorts us in verse 33, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with treasures in heaven that do not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. You see, it's the irony that by selling and by giving, you are storing and you are keeping. Just as the rich fool sought to provide treasure for himself, Jesus is inviting us as his followers to provide treasures for ourselves. But he wants us to have treasure that will last. He wants us to make a wise investment. So the question is then, what or whom will you treasure? If you do treasure the material, then you can store it, but only for a time. But it will always be treasure that will rust, that will fail, that will get stolen. And even if it doesn't, you'll leave it behind in the grave anyway. But whatever you invest for the sake of Jesus will never grow old. It'll never be stolen. It'll never perish. Even the cup of cold water that's given to a brother or sister is remembered in the kingdom. And what a, what a privilege it is to actually be part of God's means to provide for his people. God is, is provider, and part of the ways he does that it be by using us to give generously to those who have need. And lastly, what you treasure will occupy most of your thought. It'll occupy your affections. It'll occupy your time. You'll love your treasure. <coughs> you'll honor your treasure. You will serve your treasure. It will be the desire of your heart. So choose wisely and choose treasure that will last. For Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So brothers and sisters, do not be anxious about your food. Don't be anxious about your clothing. Don't be anxious, in fact, about anything. Your life is more than these things, and God can and does provide according to his good purpose. Whereas, ultimately, we can't be trusted. Uh, we can't be certain. And it's arrogance to assume that we can. So don't worry. But instead, seek first the kingdom of God. Labor with all of your heart and might for the treasure that does not perish. And trust God with the rest. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And do not be anxious. Let's pray. Uh, I will be praying a prayer from the Book of Common Prayer in the Thanksgiving section, a prayer of general thanksgiving. Almighty God, the Father of all mercies, we, your unworthy servants, do give you most humble and hearty thanks for all your goodness and loving kindness to us and to all men. We bless you for our creation, for our preservation, and all the blessings of this life, but above all, for your inestimable love in the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace, and for the hope of glory. And we ask you, give us that due sense of all your mercy, that our hearts may be unfeignedly thankful, that we may show forth your praise, not only with our lips, but with our lives, 
by giving up ourselves to your service and walking before you in holiness and righteousness all our days through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Ghost be all honour and glory, world without end. Amen.